Okay, I think it's 9.30. Romans 8. <coughs> okay, let's go ahead. We're starting the last chapter in the quarter. I've divided it into two sections. Hopefully, we'll get to verse 17 by the end of the class. So I've got 45 minutes. Maybe I'll do it. Maybe I won't. But we will get through all of chapter 8 before the end of next week. How does that sound? Okay, so... If you think about last week when we were in chapter 7, we made some observations. The first observation, the way I chose to word this, was that the Christian has died to his former self. And when you think about going back to chapter 7, verse 4, specifically within the context of chapter 7, it is a really a discussion to the fact that these brethren here, specifically the Jews here in in Rome, had died to the law through the body of Christ. They had put their old life behind them. They had put the law behind them. And we even, I think, had mentioned or made a comment that Christ himself had done what to the law? Nailed it to the cross. Ephesians, Colossians had, had referenced that. So that's one main point that we looked at. I'll come back to this topic in just a minute. But the second is we spent quite a bit of time just thinking about the value of the law. It, it, you know, in the context of chapter 7, how did Paul know that coveting was wrong but through the law? So law brought a knowledge of sin to, to the Jew. Then Paul sort of personalizes the discussion and says that though the law is good, the fact that he knew coveting was wrong, what did he choose to do? What did sin do to him? Deceived him, right? And so we talked about this inner struggle that you know, that Paul had, and and he's a personification of all of us, that we talked about the fact that we sin and it just, we we go, we spiral downward into this pit of sin. And and so that was, um, uh, you know, some, uh, some topics that we looked at. And before, before we go to the last one, I I guess I want to maybe drive home a point that maybe I wasn't as strong last week as, you know, I thought I was. But, you know, we, we observed in the first class that there were Jew and Gentiles in Rome. Did we not make that? And we looked at passages to support the fact that there were Gentiles in the church at Rome. And, and we too, uh, you know, I, I think most of us, if not 99.9% of us, are from a Gentile background. So then you have to think, okay, if I am a, a Christian in Rome, coming from a Gentile background, then as I'm sitting listening to this being read, or reading it myself, what value does chapter 7 have to me? Because when you think about... Most of seven is addressing the law in some form or fashion, correct? So I want to make sure we're, we're, we're considering and thinking about the applicability of chapter seven to us. Did the Gentile, and thinking about chapter one, well, no, specifically chapter two, 
didn't the Gentiles live by a law? Yes. That was a point that Paul was making. Did, he, did they violate the law? That, that law that they had brought forth some knowledge of right and wrong, did it not? But they chose to do wrong, just like the Jew did. Okay, same thing for us. So, and, and so there's this inner struggle. And, and, and when we think about the value of the law, is there value to the, of the law to the Gentile? Yeah, because think about, just in a, a few chapters, Paul's going to affirm in chapter 15, verse 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. Was it written only for the Jews' instruction that were in Rome? It's written for our instruction that you may have hope, that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we may have hope. So I guess the point that I'm making is, if I'm a Gentile in the audience, I still can make the lessons that Paul is driving home in this chapter to me. That I have to die to my former self. I can learn great things from, from the law. And I won't go in, in, in specifics like I did last week. And that there is this inner struggle that all men have where we know right and wrong, but what do we choose to do? We choose to do the wrong. Because I think Tolly said it was last week, the flesh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So before we go to the last point, I just wanted to drive that home because then what is the solution that Paul brings out? At the very end of class, didn't we affirm this solution that we have been talking about most of the quarter? The solution is Christ. And so Paul has been bringing this in from every direction over the last, I guess, well, eight chapters, seven chapters, but for us, what, 12 weeks? So that, that in verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus then is the solution to man's problems. So this week, we're going to like connect this idea of Jesus being the solution. We're going to move in to chapter 8 where Paul will affirm even more about Jesus Christ being the solution. And he's going to transition to this conflict, talking about this conflict between the flesh and the spirit. He's going to talk about that. He's going to talk about the conditional nature of being in the spirit. It is not just a one and done in the spirit, but that it's a continual journey of being in the spirit but it's conditional upon what we do. And then the fourth, uh, excuse me, the third thing that we'll look at is the benefits of being in the Spirit because he's, he's really, as I read it, exhorting these, his brethren to remain true in the, in, in the Spirit. So those are the things that we're going to be looking at. And again, if there is nothing else that you take away from my babbling over the next 45 minutes, it's this, that, um, that there is this battle that we have. And through Christ, 
Christ has set the Christian free uh, and that uh, from sin, from death, and, and notice that, and this is to me a huge benefit that we'll talk about, that we are fellow heirs with Christ and we will be glorified with him. Isn't that an amazing benefit? And so let's sort of dig deeper into this um, chapter. So notice he's talked about the fact that um, it's Jesus Christ that can take this wretched man and change him. And so why, and this is question one, why is there no condemnation in Christ Jesus? Yes. Okay. So, uh, verse one: for there, for there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. So, again, just repeating a point: man sins. What are we do? When, yeah, we've earned death, but God is love, God is just, and he's provided a way of escape, and that way is through Jesus Christ. Now, I, wanna, I want to maybe make some observations about this whole section, really, uh, verses 1 through 4. And so, first off, I want you to even notice in, cha- uh, in verse 1, the conditional nature of of this freedom that man has in Christ, where the Christian is not condemned. What's the condition? State of being in Christ. Christ For those who are in Christ Jesus. So we even, you know, talked about when we were looking in chapter 5 that the language there couldn't support universal salvation, right? Well... In other places, we've talked about the conditional nature of uh, being justified and being reconciled. It was always in Christ. Here, once again, those who are in Christ are not condemned. They're free from this burden of sin. And so the other thing I want to point out, too, is this. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ has set you free. What's that a reference to? Any idea? The law of the Spirit. I'm sorry, Bruce. The truth. The truth shall make you free, the gospel. Think about all the way back to Romans 1.16. What's God's power to save man? The gospel. So this truth, uh, this law, rather, of the Spirit of life in Christ seems in my, as I see it, as I read it, when I think about the overall context of Romans, it's a reference to the gospel. The gospel, and, and even, and I made this observation back uh, last week, I think it was, in Romans six seventeen, becoming obedient to that form of teaching that, that, you know, they're committed to. That's a reference to the gospel. And so it's the gospel that God uses to free man, to, to, um, to, uh, you know, bring about a knowledge of, of truth and create the faith that is saving David. 
to make the point where, okay, in chapter 7, emphasizing the idea of death, there's the death to the law, particularly for the Jews, to the law of Moses. And so that does not mean that law altogether, all divine laws yeah. are eliminated. Right. And so this, this kind of brings that out. Okay, we're dead to this law mm-hmm. that cannot redeem us. Yeah. But the law of the Spirit that comes you know, through the gospel of Christ, yeah. Yeah, that's exa- what we have to submit to. Yeah, and, and I think we'll dig a little deeper into that concept as we talk about this conflict between the flesh and the, and the Spirit. Okay, so now when we think about the gospel on this hand, well, it doesn't matter. Uh, And then in verse 3, now we're contrasting to this law, the old covenant. What could it not do? It couldn't make us free. It couldn't uh, free us from this condemnation. What does the writer of Hebrews say in Hebrews 10? The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin, but what did? goes on down into probably verses 8, 9, and 10. But it was the blood of Jesus. It was the sacrifice of Jesus that was able to take away sin. So notice, for what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh... So now he's introducing this concept of flesh, spirit, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering of sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So going back to Hebrews 10, the blood of bulls and goats, that cattle couldn't do it. But Christ, and we've seen this before, I think in chapter 3, if I remember right, Christ's sacrifice was that propitiatory sacrifice, that atoning blood that was able to appease God's wrath. Verse 4, in order that the requirement of the law, us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I want you to think about, what's he talking about? I didn't ask this question in my sheet But I want you to think, what is he referring to by this term, in order that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled? And there might be multiple answers. I have one direction that I'm wanting to go into, but interested in hearing your feedback. Wages of sin is death. Wages of sin is death. He kept the law perfectly. But I want you to think about the essence of the law. What did the essence of the law, let's drill it down to the core basic concept of the law. What did God require? Obedience. Holiness. Let's go to Deuteronomy 10, 12. Deuteronomy 10, 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God require from you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways and love him and to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul? Think about what did Jesus say was the greatest commandment in the law. 
love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Isn't that really Deuteronomy 10, 12? It's Deuteronomy 6, 5 as well, okay? So when you sort of get the law all the way down to its core fact, it's all about loving God. Now, if I were a Jew under the covenant, did I choose to be a Jew? For the most part. Did I, I was born into it. What does Jeremiah 31 say? I'm not going to be born into it, right? But what's this new covenant? What's going to be unique about this covenant? Forgiveness, but where is the covenant going to be? Written on the heart, thinking about 2 Corinthians, it's verses, tablets of stone, right? It's a whole different matter. But God's basic core requirement is love him. And so here, when you think about in order that the requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us, as Christians, we choose to take on the responsibilities, the covenant of Christ, to accept the covenant of Christ, right? Versus the law, where I was was born into it. But as a Christian, I'm accepting it when I obey and and acknowledge him as Christ, and I'm buried with him in baptism, where I put to death the old man of sin. That's what this... uh, this requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, that we are loving God to our core, and then we're walking according to the Spirit because we're choosing to obey him versus obey our flesh, our own desires. Okay? You follow me? Follow that thought, that reasoning? Make sense? Okay, so that's to me this requirements of the law who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So now we're setting up this contrast now between the flesh and the spirit. And so let's look at what he talks about with regard to the flesh and the spirit. Notice, and so I guess this is question two, contrast the mindset on the flesh with the mindset on the spirit. So let's talk about the flesh, talk about the spirit and make some observations. The flesh, it says, those who are, uh, who are according to the flesh, well, let me go back to verse four, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh. So, if I'm the flesh, I'm going to walk a certain way, right? Based on the flesh. Now, what is walking? Like this, like I do all the time? It's, it's, it, when you look at the word, it's really manner of life. So, it's living. How do I live? So, I'm living daily. If I'm according to the flesh... I've set my mind on the things of the flesh. Because what's here will then I, will be manifested how? In words and deeds. Isn't that what Ma- uh, Jesus said in Matthew? For out of the heart comes evil. Yeah, out, out of the heart 
come evil things, evil thoughts, murders, right? So what's in here will then drive the actual visible action. So now, let's look further at this idea of flesh. For the mindset on the flesh is death, the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. So the outcome is death. And notice further about, well, I'm going to stop here for a second. Okay, so now let's go over by the Spirit and see, and, and see the contrast that he's got. The one that is led by the Spirit is walking by the Spirit. He is, um, his banner of life, his thoughts are all shaped by the Spirit. Well, what does that mean, being shaped by the Spirit? Okay, what was the law of the spirit that we just talked about? The truth, right? Gospel. So the gospel, <coughs> the gospel, the truth that God has provided, that's going to shape our lives. Think about Romans 6 when Brian taught that grace demands a changed life. Baptism, when we accept Christ, it demands a changed life. And that life is no longer led by the flesh. That changed life is now being led by the Spirit. Okay, so we walk according to the uh, Spirit and our mind are are set on the Spirit. So a couple of things I would just note is when you look at in verse, let's go to verse 6. No, I'm sorry, seven. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. It is not even able to do so because it does not recognize God and God's authority. Okay, think about the description of the Gentiles back in in chapter one. They did not honor him. They did not subject themselves to God. That's this image that we're getting of someone being led by the flesh. Um, and, and so, and again, the outcome, the outcome is death for those led by the flesh uh, and then life and peace led by the spirit. Think about, I'm just going to go back and trying to connect dots as well, but think about Romans, the second chapter where there's this contrast between those who are seeking glory and honor and immortality and those who are not. Notice the description here, because here is this type of conflict here. And beginning in, um, I'll just do verse 6, chapter 2, verse 6 of Romans. Who will render to every man according to its deeds, to those who by perseverance in doing good, okay, so they're following the Spirit, Seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, that's those who are being led by the flesh, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. So we see this consistency that Paul outlines here in Romans about the choices that man has. You choose to live by the flesh, 
You choose to live by the Spirit, and there is a definitive outcome for both. Okay, and I couldn't help, as you think about this conflict between flesh and spirit, I couldn't help but think about Galatians, the fifth chapter. In Galatians 5, there is this uh, description of this conflict. And just for sake of time, I don't have the, I, I don't have time to sort of go in depth here. But notice in uh, verse 16, but I say in Galatians 5, but I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. You see what's implied there. If I'm focused, if my mind is set on the Spirit, and I'm walking by the Spirit, am I going down the path of the flesh? No. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another. There's this conflict, so that you may... Excuse me, so that you may not do the things that you please. Okay? If I'm walking by the Spirit, I've put to death the old man of sin. That's Colossians, the third chapter, where we're seeing this new man putting, <coughs> putting to death the old man. So, again, in, chapter, in Galatians 5.18, But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. And then Paul describes the works of the flesh and then describes the fruit of the Spirit. And that's really this, this image that we see of the, the conflict between the flesh and the Spirit. Okay, I'm going to sort of be quiet for two seconds. Any comments? I've done a lot of talking. David. Romans 8 with Galatians 5. And these two different walks mm-hmm. where Romans kind of emphasized the idea, okay, these are these two different states of life, mm-hmm. you know, manner of living. But Galatians emphasizes the idea, do it. Yeah. And so there's this intentional, purposeful mm-hmm. you know, decision and allegiance to seek the spiritual things. Where Romans emphasizes, okay, here's these two states. Mm-hmm. And the Christian needs to right. understand this relationship between mm-hmm. the two. Galatians 5, Paul there is like, okay, I'll do it. Yeah, exactly. Okay, and so now, notice what, as we talk about being led by the flesh, led by the Spirit, this conflict. In verses 9 through 11, you, 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 you picture, you get this, this image that it's conditional. It's not guaranteed. <clears throat> but I want to point out uh, the first part of verse 9, where he talks about, where he sort of summarizes this idea of flesh and spirit. Verse 9, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. So it's almost like he's trying to exhort them to say, brethren, you're not of the flesh. You are of the spirit. He's, he's motivating them to make sure that they follow the spirit. And, and I got, and I couldn't help but think about the writer of Hebrews. Go to Hebrews 10. Because what's, what, what are the Hebrew brethren in danger of? Going back to the law. Going back to the law. Okay. 
And so what does the writer of Hebrews 10 say in verse 39? But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the persevering of the soul. You, you sort of see what he's trying to do? He's trying to exhort these Hebrew brethren, you're not going to shrink back. You're not going back to the old ways of, 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 the, of the covenant, the Hebrew covenant. I, I couldn't help but think of the same thing when I read Hebrews 8, excuse me, Romans 8 verse 9. He's, Paul is exhorting them to remain faithful to the Spirit. And why? Because it's conditional. Because notice, and I'm going to just display my big if, okay? Sometimes brevity is better, Right? So, however, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And if Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells in you. See that conditional nature just just jumps out at you when you read this. Okay? And so we, you know, the Romans and us, we need to be striving. It's a choice. Flesh, spirit. And even though we make the initial choice to be of the spirit, what's the danger? that we may veer off course. We may have to do some in-flight correction from time to time, but he is encouraging us to stay on track, stay on course, to be of the Spirit. And notice how he says at the end of verse 11, he who raised Jesus Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. What greater motivation because again, well, go back for a second. If I'm led by the Spirit, what's my outcome? Life and peace. And so he's trying to drive home the fact that don't lose sight of that. That the end game is all about living in such a way by the Spirit that God will raise you up uh, through the Spirit who indwells in you that you'll have that eternal life. Okay, so now, I'm going to move on to question five. Well, no, 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 sorry, question four. What is the result of being led by the Spirit? And when I, you know, sometimes you go back and you think, I don't like the word result. I changed it to benefit. So as the instructor, I have to, you know, the right to sort of change the wording. Um, So I'm going to say, what is the benefit or what are the benefits of being led by the Spirit? Hmm? Oh, heirs, yes. Okay, sorry. So I actually noticed several benefits, one of them being heir, heir, being an heir of God. And so first off, let's start to look at this a little in depth. Notice the first benefit is what? Life, eternal life. And that really goes into this end of chapter, uh, of verse 11. 
And, and notice, you know, if this is our benefit, he reminds his audience in verse 12, so then, okay, it's like he's bringing some conclusion here. So then, brethren, we are under obligation. I thought that was an interesting word, obligation. What does that sort of evoke, invoke in your mind? It's a requirement. If you're wanting to live in such a way by the Spirit to, to obtain life, and immortality, then it's a requirement. We are obliged to do, live a certain way, not to the flesh. Okay? Not to the flesh. And so, um, the, to me, as I see it, that first benefit is eternal life. And then he goes on, and notice verse 13. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Okay? For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. I could not help. When, I, when, you, when you read certain verses, don't you automatically go to another passage? Well, that's the way my mind works at least. So I couldn't help but think about 1 John, the third chapter. When you think about all the blessings that God has given us, because in our former state, how did Paul describe us in chapter 5 of Romans? Enemies, helpless, sinners. And now we have the ability to be his child, to be his children. And so my mind went to 1 John, the third chapter. See how great a love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Embedded is that thought of flesh versus spirit. If we're children of God, we're following the spirit. We're not following the following the flesh so is the world going to know us because we're not like them no and so beloved now we are children of God and it has not appeared as yet what we shall be we know that when he appears we shall be like him because we shall see him just as he is sound familiar with what we just talked about and everyone who has this hope fixed on him, what does he do? He purifies himself just as he is pure. So isn't that being led by the Spirit? Because if we are following the Spirit, we are constantly striving to be like whom? Like God. First Peter, right? Be holy as I am holy. And so, to me, the second benefit is we're children of God, which brings in this idea of adoption. And notice what he says, because he says in verse 15, for you, are, for you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry, cry out, Abba, Father. Now, 
What does adoption give an individual? I'm sorry, I heard multiple things. Inheritance? A family? Belonging? Yes, that's where I'm going. That's where my mind is going. So there's all of those things that we've talked about. But I have a legal inheritance, a, 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 a right, legal right, to, to, any, to the benefits of being a child of a person, okay? That's what this is. And, and you know, I, I guess I hadn't really thought of it this way until... I guess my own family has been affected, positively affected by adoption. So I've got five grandkids, four of them are adopted, one's not. But I consider the four that are adopted to be equal in every respect to the one that's natural born. You see, because they have the inheritance, they have the legal right to everything that the natural born grandchild has. So is there to be any distinction made between the five in my case? No. Or anybody that is adopted. That is the beauty of what the message is all about that Paul is saying. We have received a spirit of adoption where we are entitled because of what God has done to be, to receive all of the benefits that God has. Does that make sense? And notice here, he says, as sons which we cry out, Abba, Father. Now, I want to look into this term a little bit because I think it can help us have a deeper, richer meaning here if we look at the term Abba, Father. Within the context here of Romans 8, verses 12 through 14, or 15, even beyond. Because at its essence, living by the flesh versus living by the Spirit, it's a choice, but it's, it's a matter of obedience, is it not? If I want to have eternal life, if I want that as the outcome then must I not be obedient to the Spirit, to the law of the Spirit? I have to be obedient to God. And I'm, I'm, I'm bearing that out because I think that's a part of this. This term, Abba Father, is used three times in the New Testament. Let's go first to Mark 14. In Mark 14, verse 36, Jesus is in the garden, right? And he's praying to God. What's he about to face? He's about to face the crucifixion. And he is praying to God. Notice, he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for thee. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what thou wilt. So Jesus, you know, as a man looking for a way, is there another way out of this to still achieve the purpose? And so Jesus recognizes and submits to the will 
of the Father. We even see that in Hebrews 10, okay? He submitted, he, he, he came to do thy will, paraphrasing Hebrews 10. Okay, so keep that in mind. Now go to Galatians, the fourth chapter, verse six. <clears throat> and in the context of Galatians 4, The God sends forth his son at the right time. Okay? Notice, in order that he might redeem those who are under the law, this is verse 5, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Again, connect the, the dots here. We're still, uh, uh, as long as the phrase, uh, with regard to the phrase adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So who's the one crying out, Abba, Father? It's the spirit that's crying out, Abba, Father. Okay, therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then heir through God. So So what did the spirit do? At God's request. I'm sorry, do what? Spirit intercedes, but in the context here, what did what did what did the spirit do? What allowed let, let me rephrase the question. What did how did the Galatians, the Jews in Galatia, become Christians? What occurred? What were they given? Were they not given the law? The law of the spirit, the gospel, right? Okay, so if you think back in John, I hope you're trying to at least follow my my train of thought. But in, in John 14, verse 26, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. When you connect it to John 16, 13, when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Now, granted, the audience are the apostles, but what has the Spirit done for us? Given us the word. Thank you. That's actually what I'm looking for. The Spirit made known God's will. God sent the Spirit. So when you think about Galatians, the fourth chapter, and the Spirit crying out, Abba, Father, The Spirit is obeying the will of the Father by making known the gospel to the Galatians, to the brethren. Because therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. Why? How are they become a son? Because they have accepted the gospel. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, or who, which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things? You see the point he's making. It was God's will 
to make known the gospel. The Spirit obeyed the Father and brought the, the word to them. But why, Galatians, are you turning back again to your former things? So within the context of Abba Father here, the point that I'm trying to make is Abba Father is also a term that can imply submission, obedience, doing the will of the Father. Yes, there is this intrinsic uh, close relationship that exists between the Father and the Son, going back to Mark 14, and with God and the Spirit here in Galatians 4. But it is more, the term Abba Father is more than just acknowledging this close relationship. It is a recognition of submitting to the will of the Father. And when you go to Romans, going back to Romans, the eighth chapter, isn't that in the context of what Paul is saying is, you've received an adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. Within the context, it's about obedience, living by the Spirit, putting to death the old man. Again, if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You are obeying God. And you're obeying God to the point that you're going to be suffering. And that's really the where we're going to go to in verses 16, 17, and 18. We're not only fellow heirs with Christ, but we're going to be glorified. Notice in verse 17, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. We'll pick up on this idea of of suffering, of glorification, as we move into the, this latter half of Romans 8. But I just wanted you to see the context of this term, Abba Father, because it is more than just acknowledging, you know, the daddy relationship. I think we're missing the point if that's all that we see in this term. Okay, talk to you next week.